This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. Liverpool Arena, social commentator, socially commentating what they're stipulating. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on, cause you're in for a howling ride. Cause I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on four feet time. Explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that shares new ideas and new ways of seeing and relating to the world around us with an eye to creating a more beautiful world. My guests this morning are David Montgomery, professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington, and Anne Bickley, a biologist and gardener. They are authors of The Hidden Half of Nature, about the microbial level of nature in the soil and all living things, including ourselves. And they will be giving a presentation and book signing this coming Tuesday evening at the Hay Barn on the Goddard campus here in Plainfield. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing fine. It's nice and early. Just getting rolling. Yeah, it's it's kind of nice to do this in the morning first thing. Yeah, and you know, and the the weather out here today reminds us of our home in Seattle. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? We do everything we can <laughs> to make you feel at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, including the rain. That's part of the freshness here this morning. <laughs> yeah, I don't... I'm. Who knows? Maybe you guys brought it with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, David, what is geomorphology, and how did geomorphology come together with biology and gardening in your work together? Well, geomorphology is a subdiscipline of the earth sciences or of geology, and it's about, you can break the word down, geo is, is earth, and morpho, morphos is form, and ology is science. So it's the study of the surface forms of the earth. A hundred years ago, I might have been called a topographer. And so I'm the kind of geologist that studies uh, what shapes the features of the earth that we live on, that, that shape our lives, that influence how we live in different places. And the way that, that biology and geology came together in this book, The Hidden Half, to look at microbial stuff is part of the story that we tell in the book, but the short version of it is that I'd worked on problems of soil degradation 
in places around the world and how that influenced agriculture and had written a previous book called Dirt about that. And as I was writing that book, Anne was building a garden and restoring the soil in our yard. And she, the way that she was doing it and how effective it was got us to start thinking about what really is the basis for healthy, fertile soils. How does that work? And we, the more we looked into it, the more the microbial aspects came into sort of full focus, if you will, if we can say that about something that's actually invisible. Yeah, and there's a huge explode. Well, I sh- I don't know how huge it is, but there is certainly an explosion of interest in this new term, the microbiome these days, um, in gut health and soil health. Probably more so in gut health these days because people are so concerned about the degenerating health of that that we're experiencing, particularly in our Western society, but. Many of us in the organic communities have been um, aware of this and very interested in this in terms of soil health. So how did you guys become so interested? You touched on it. When we were looking at how uh, fast the soil is restored in our garden and the way that Anne went about it, it opened the window onto the role of microbial life. And that stuff that, you know, in the the gardening community and the plant science world uh, was not like terribly new. It's been worked out over the past 20, 30 years, really the mechanisms for how it works. And we go into that in the book as well. And perhaps we can, we can go into that a bit later. But we also started looking at the role of microbial life in the human gut as a result of things Anne looked into after she had a health crisis. And we started to realize the parallels between what was going on in the human gut in terms of the microbiome and what was going on in the root zone of the soil. And to sort of to cut to the, the, the chase on the big picture implications, they're kind of the same system inside out in the way that the microbes facilitate the health of the host organisms, whether it's the plant or whether it's our cells. And when we started to realize and recognize those parallels, we started to realize that this is really how nature is put together, how nature works, and it's a very different way of looking at the relationship between sort of large organisms that we know and can study in the natural history-like disciplines and the microbiota that we've tended to look at mostly as pests and pathogens through history, but that actually the communities of them turn out to be essential for maintaining the health of ourselves and, and our crops and our gardens and indeed you know, plants and animals at all levels throughout nature. Uh, and one of the big points of the book is that this really is a very different way to look at nature and to look at ourselves. And that's what drew us into exploring these connections uh, between what we call the microbial roots of life and health. And we tend to think of ourselves as being individual beings, but that's quite an illusion, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that may be surprising to listeners who have either dipped into the microbiome or maybe as a result of this program would want to is that we have always thought of ourselves as different than the rest of, you know, life forms. And so I think it's especially surprising when you realize that we... uh, we are at least as much microbial as we are our own human cells. That's been, um, that's been one of the very first sort of factoids that you bump into if you look into the microbiome. And it, numbers have been, um, estimates have been changing somewhat recently 
At one point, the ratio of a microbial cell to a human cell was 10 microbes for every one of our cells, and that's been revised to somewhere in between. We're at least one-to-one to upwards of three-to-one microbial cells to our cells. And when you really think about that, you, you sort of ask yourself, hmm, I wonder, I wonder why that is. And it also gives you, you know, a lot of food for thought when you begin to think, well, what if something goes wrong with my microbial parts, so to speak, um, what, are the, what are the implications for me? And I think as a biologist, what's really interesting is to think about the coevolution between not just, you know, our species, but between all life, you know, even the microbes themselves, you know, up to something as large as a whale. Uh, much of life is nested in symbiotic relationships with the microbial world. And that that crosses across, uh, you know, plant and animal kingdoms, it tells us, I think, that there's something really pretty fundamental about, uh, about the microbial world and about, you know, what, in a sense, you know, sort of helps all of us keep coming along and kicking and staying alive. And when you look into it, as David and I did, microbes have a lot to do with all of that. I'm really curious about how we talk about ourselves and the microbes in our gut and in other parts of our body. Why and how are we distinguishing the two apart as being separate? Yeah, probably you, you and a lot of other people, including us, have that question because, because really when you look into this, we're not, we're not at all separate. Um, we've got microbial cells shoulder to shoulder with, you know, our own cells that line our entire digestive tract. And, uh, and it's the same way, you know, in other parts of our body. The way, the way I sort of think about things, especially after, you know, doing the research and writing this book, uh, is that we really are this amalgamation of life forms ourselves. And it's hard for our big brain to get to accept that and to wrap around that because we've always thought of ourselves as such a unique species and so different than everything else. But in our guts, bacteria and fungi and other types of microbes are intimately connected with just about everything that happens down there. And when you really sort of take that to heart. I do a lot of my thinking while I'm taking a walk, and there's been times during the process of writing this book when I would have been out taking a walk, and when I just sort of uh, stop for a moment and think, wow, I had no idea how microbial I was. And that can be, that can be sort of startling. It can be, you know, somewhat disconcerting, but I think if you have an appreciation for um, nature and how... Uh, especially me as, as a gardener, how anything grows, you think, yeah, that's pretty cool, too, that it's not just me. It's this whole sort of flotilla of, of things that are part of my body that are, that are keeping me alive and making me run. And the numbers involved here reflect 
cosmological and astronomical figures, like the number of stars in our universe, perhaps. So that can give us pause when we think about the amount of life that is teeming inside of us, inside our bodies, and the implications, the possible implications of that, which we'll definitely be getting into. Yeah, well, you can kind of think of each one of us as our own little unique galaxy of microbial life that is inhabiting us. And I was astounded by the numbers, too. If you look at simply the estimates of the number of microbes on this planet, it's thought to be around a nonillion, which would be a one followed by 30 zeros, uh, which is a very big number. And if, if you actually look at the size of a microbe and you take that number and go, okay, if you stretched all the microbes on this planet, end-to-end, how far could they reach? It turns out to be to the closest star to us and back. And I'm not talking about the sun, the closest star out of our solar system and back. Mm. Yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This planet is literally riddled with life forms in its outer crust and at at surface. And as it turns out, so are we. It's, It's the basic architecture of nature. And we have these incredibly complex symbiotic relationships. Yeah, that's right. What in part is so interesting about the microbiome science is it can be somewhat tricky to talk about species because microbes, much of the microbial world, uh, in particular bacteria and viruses, they don't really stay fixed um, like, say, we do over our lifetimes. You know, we're born... We've got our genome, and uh, we, we pretty much die with that. Well, at least with our, the human part of our genome, that stays, you know, that is, that is set um, in the womb, and it's pretty much the same when we die. But with the microbial world, they sort of can change their gene set maybe as casually as, as we shake hands. And what this means for the microbes that live in our gut is that they can sort of acquire, you could could call it, you know, a new skill set, you know, maybe not daily, but certainly over the the life of a bacterial cell, they may come into this world, you know, expert at, say, breaking down, um, you know, a particular kind of carbohydrate and in our gut, say, um, they get challenged with something else and they can, could, you know, turn on a dime and, and become harmful um, to us. And so that's what's in part so fascinating about the microbial world. They're extremely flexible and depending on what their environment is like, they can change their skill set. You know, I suspect climate change, just to take an example, we know the sort of havoc that that's wreaking on um, on our own lives, you know, from changing, um, say, you know, the crops that we're able to grow to really disrupting um, people who live on islands and, and around water and are having to, to move. Microbes, I think they're going to do just fine with climate change. Um, they'll, they'll, you know, employ their... Uh, their plasticity and change in ways that will allow them to to manage that environmental challenge. I've studied that kind of stuff a little bit. Several years ago, I was looking into EM, which is essential microbes. It's a Japanese uh, microbial technology 
technology is not quite the right word, but these these microbes have these amazing abilities to morph and also to entrain other colonies of microbes, which is something that you talked about with fecal implants, that when they do fecal implants, the microbes that are introduced into the environment then have this effect of literally entraining the environment that they're introduced into, you know, to the positive or, or intended effect. Yeah, the fecal transplant work is quite interesting. It's showing us, you know, several things, you know, what you just mentioned, and also that our bodies really are uh, ecosystems. Fecal transplant is just a fantastic example of environmental restoration, I think, because Mm -hmm. here we've got a sort of scorched earth, you know, gut, and what's living in there is not a person's, you know, normal microbiome, uh, the one that, that can be beneficial, but it's, you know, the bad cousins that have moved in and are causing all kinds of problems. And then all you do is you introduce, you know, the microbiome of a healthy person, and the results can be really quite astounding. You know, there's been studies that show within a number of hours to a day or two, that the malady, the symptom that the person was suffering, pretty much is cleared up. And this may have been after months and and weeks of antibiotics that are trying to get rid of rogue microbes, but you introduce beneficial microbes, you know, at numbers in, I think, what's particularly interesting about this, it's probably the community makeup of the microbes more than any one species that is turning around, you know, a person's gut. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the the EM, the effective microbes, uh, they're used in agriculture and gardening. And last year I went to visit some farmers in uh, on coffee plantations and subsistence farms in Costa Rica who were using sort of a variant of that um, called MAMA, or the Microorganismos de Montañas, that or, you know, microorganisms from the mountains, where what they would do is effectively go through a microbial community ecosystem restoration, like Anna's just talking about for the gut, but they're doing it for very degraded agricultural soils on some of the coffee-growing mountainsides in Costa Rica. And what they do is they essentially go out to a patch of native forest, and they dig down to the base of the organic layer in the forest, where there's a lot of the fungal uh, mycorrhizae from the forest, and they get that, they collect a piece, some of it, they take it back, and then they essentially ferment it. They essentially brew up a tea, like, uh, it's kind of like compost tea, but made out of the uh, organic matter um, that's fungal-rich from the forest floor. And then they use that as an amendment to try and help kickstart the microbial life in their soils and get them back to being very productive and to storing carbon and to building fertility that's been degraded from agricultural practices. And so there's these wonderful parallels between the medical world and the the gardening or agricultural worlds, where if you start thinking about microorganisms as ecosystems and communities through which the symbiotic relationships that you mentioned earlier can actually support the health of higher organisms, plants, or the the people who eat them, um, it really opens different avenues for thinking about how to address some of the problems that we have in health, things like uh, like, uh, gut issues, 
or in agriculture, things like degraded soil. And that's a lot of what we talk about in the book is how that's opening sort of new avenues for having looks at old practices and also using modern technology to develop new tools. It's amazing the level of ignorance that we have in our society. We regularly joke about the idea that there are many people in this country who think that food comes from supermarkets. And we can extend that to the simplistic notion that plants just grow out of the ground. And when we look at microbial activity in nature, it really opens up an entirely new frontier. Oh, it really does. And it's one of the things, uh, Ann and I um, in graduate school took a soil science class together uh, more years ago now than we either of us will, will advertise on the air. But the um, it, one of the, we didn't really learn in that class about the role of um, microbial life in the same way that now, a few decades later, we understand that it works. And, you know, I had always been trained as a geologist and thought of as uh, plant roots as straws that essentially suck nutrients and water, you know, nutrients dissolved in water up out of the soil to benefit the plant. But it turns out that we really ought to be thinking about roots as a two-way street. They're pulling nutrients from the soil, but they're also pushing stuff out into the soil. And, and those things are called exudates, you know, stuff that the plants exude out of the roots into the soil. And it turns out that that's a, a sort of a broth of carbohydrates, of sugars, and proteins. And a plant, plants have a monopoly in this world on photosynthesis. So they can grab sunlight, mix it with water and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and turn it into sugars, the building blocks of organisms of, of carbon-based life. And why would they just waste, push a lot of that stuff out into the soil? And by some estimates, plants will push on average about 30 to 40% of all those molecules that they synthesize through photosynthesis out of their roots and into the soil. Um, it really kind of makes no sense from a classical economics kind of perspective unless you think that, oh, maybe they're getting something in return. And what they're doing is if you follow the fate, what's happened in the last sort of 20 years uh, of looking at what's happening in the root zone of plants, those exudates are leaving the plant roots and they're being consumed from about a millimeter to a centimeter away. They don't make it very far. They're being consumed by microbes. And those microbes use them for energy because they are, it's basically they're pushing out uh, energy sources into the, into the soil. The microbes consume them. And what are their waste products? Those waste products, which are produced right around the root zone of the plant, end up getting taken back up by the plant. And they include things like plant growth promoting hormones. Um, they help, those exudates help dissolve things like phosphorus out of the soil. Fungi will actually send their hyphae way out into the soil to grab things like phosphorus and micronutrients, bring them back into the root zone of the plants, and trade them for those sugars. So there's these symbioses that have developed in the rhizosphere, the sort of the zone of life around plant roots, uh, through which the plants are feeding the microbes and the microbes are doing things that help support the health and vitality of their botanical host. And that's a true symbiosis. You basically have this cycle where the input, the waste product from one organism is the raw materials that the other uses to produce waste products that the other one uses. It's a virtuous circle that the communities of microorganisms are supporting the health of the plants. Uh, they'll even produce things uh, that can help scare, uh, you know, make the plant taste bad when herbivores start chopping on their leaves. The plant will send out... Distress, chemical distress signals through its roots into the soil, 
that in effect end up feeding microbes that that then produce metabolites that the plant takes back up and it can help dispel the the threat that the plant was under. Those kind of interrelationships have only really recently been discovered. There's been a lot of uh, recognition for a century that a life-filled soil helps suppress plant diseases and supports plant health. But we're now at the point where scientists have uncovered the mechanisms through which it all works. And it's this wonderful, rich, microbially mediated interaction that highlights the importance of microbial ecology on the world of nature that we know and see for with our own senses. If I close my eyes, it's really easy for me to anthropomorphize these kind of economic relationships that are going on down at that level would be these huge communities, these mycorrhizal communities that are growing and thriving around the root systems of plants. And there's so much magical activity going on on those levels that we are completely oblivious to. But it's not that dissimilar from what's going on up here in our worlds, is it? Yeah, I, I think that's the case. You know, one analogy that I like to make along those lines is that if you look at the, we've long overlooked the power of symbiotic relationships, particularly in sort of biology and human relationships. And if you look at what's going on in, say, the human gut and the root zone of plants, and you think about the power of symbiosis, mutually beneficial relationships, and a diversity of organisms, which is what the microbes help provide in the rhizosphere, you can look at one of the things that has really helped uh, humanity lift itself up has been the development of, say, towns and villages and cities where you have people able to specialize in certain activities and through which their mutual interactions generate a system that lifts up sort of the quality of life, if, you, if we can phrase it that way, um, for the entire community. We're able to specialize and, in that diversity, do many more things that can help an entire community. Um, and you can kind of think of microbial ecology in similar ways. Many microbes have only a limited repertoire. They'll do like one or two things really well. But if you get communities of them living together where they each can do different things and the waste product from one is the input to another, it's actually an interesting model for how we might reimagine and think about um, you know, global-scale human economies. And especially if we could get out of our own way and do what comes naturally in communities like that, yeah, that would be um, that would be a real feat. <laughs> I, I uh, was just thinking when Dave was responding to that, and this this whole notion of a uh, a community, whether it's a human community or a microbial community, where it's this this kind of pulsating, you know, moving thing. Um, if you look at it from the outside, but if you you're able to go in, what you can see are these you know, very finely tuned, you know, communications and relationships that are also incredibly responsive to what's happening inside of that community and outside of that community. And so it, it gives, there's something new that comes into, into a community, say, you know, some new kind of resource. Some being within that community, well, at least it works this way, I'm not so sure about in the human world, but certainly in nature's world, some new um, resource comes into a community, say, you know, for example, right now around here, 
the new resource coming into microbial community, communities is all of these leaves that the trees are dropping, right? This is a seasonal thing, doesn't happen every day, but there's a big flush of leaves coming in, and you can bet that microbial communities are responding to that, not, not just microbial communities, but, you know, the bigger forms of soil life as well. And that's what's so cool about, I think, the way that nature works and that ecological relationships work is they are able to respond very quickly to things and incorporate them. And uh, by things, I mean, um, you know, nutrients, you know, whether it's in the form of leaves or um, either dead animal carcass, uh, dead root, what have you. Uh, everything's sort of geared to getting a hold of that resource and deconstructing it and building more life out of it. And it's, it's very efficient. There's not waste. And complexity and resiliency sort of seem to go hand in hand in that process. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how effective and efficient they are at reusing, recycling, regenerating everything in the environment right. around them. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the really big lessons for humanity from nature and understanding how these processes work. I think there's sort of two that we haven't fully appreciated in the last century of our collective existence, and that is that, that the, the power of that kind of efficiency where the, the decay and waste products of one process are the input to another, and to design stable, lasting systems, essentially you loop them so that you're, not, you're reusing and, and very efficiently recycling things. And the other piece is the power of the symbioses that we were uh, discussing earlier in terms of how to set up and drive those systems. And you can, in a very real sense, look at the sort of life that we see above ground, the plant life and the animal life um, that we sort of know and love as nature, and you look at, well, what's the flip side of that? And that's the, the decay process, the process of, of death and decay and the remaking and recycling of those materials, of those biological materials, back into the raw materials for life. And in great part, that happens below ground and out of sight and in the microbial world. So we don't tend to pay much attention to it, because it's not perceptible in many ways. The full cycle is not perceptible to our senses. We sort of see the decay part, obviously, or we see the leaves fall, but we don't see that, that wonderful transformation of those, those leaves back into the organic matter that feeds the life in the soil, that breaks those organic compounds down into the building blocks for new life that plants then take back up. And when you start looking at the world that way in terms of those kind of cycles, you start looking at things like this, this great um, fall display that you have in New England uh, as part of, that, of nature's recycling process, and it's part of the trees through shedding their leaves are essentially setting up what will feed the soil, which will then feed the trees the following spring. Um, and so you can kind of see the, sort of the, the beauty of these grand cycles when we know how to look at them but we're not well equipped with the senses that we're born with to understand them. So much of this, we've only really come to understand how it works in the last few decades. And we were really lagging, uh, we think, in terms of applying that insight to fundamentally advance both agriculture and medicine. And that's what a lot of what we tried to focus on in the book are the opportunities that this new view of nature, um, and by new, you know, last few decades view of nature, is really setting us up to actually 
the next generation of advances in the two areas of applied science that we all really depend on, agriculture and medicine. Mm, yeah. So how essential is this process that the microbial world is engaging with continually on the planet of breaking down the dead matter, the dying plants, dead animals, dead organic matter. How essential to, to life on this planet is that process? It's absolutely essential. I think what few of us appreciate is that if we did not have all of these wonderful decomposers around us, we would be neck deep, you know, up to our eyeballs in organic waste. You know, picture that. All over this planet, every human being is wading through, you know, a pile of, of undecomposed organic matter. That in and of itself is, is quite an image. And microbes are, if you can for a moment go a little bit reductionist, everything, every living thing and even non-living thing on this planet is made of molecules and chemicals, right? In different combinations. And there's only so much of that. There's, there's a, a given budget of all of that stuff, nitrogen, carbon. It's just where it's residing at any given moment that changes. And so, you know, Dave was talking about the leaves, and, and those leaves contain, you know, some phosphorus, some carbon, some nitrogen, and some other things in them. And it's, you know, it's, it's nature's time and nature's way of uh, making those chemicals available for other parts of nature at this time of year. And that goes on, you know, all over this planet with these, you know, these grand cycles, um, whether it's carbon, whether it's nitrogen, uh, many other things. And without the microbial world, you know, they're sort of the, um, they're definitely the enablers and the facilitators of all of this cycling and uh, changing of hands, if you will, of all the, the molecules and chemicals on this planet that get reconfigured from, you know, <clears throat> let's say a, a human body into a plant, a plant into some other kind of animal's body, uh, even, you know, what volcanoes are pulling up deep from within the earth, microbes play a role in getting some of those things, you know, out into different life forms. So they're absolutely essential. Sometimes I sort of think of, of them as busy little things that are really running everything else. But because they're tiny, they're invisible. As you've already pointed out, we just don't appreciate them and we don't think about them much. Mm. Um, but it would be like, you know, you went out to your car one day and, and thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to go here or there, put the key in, and nothing happens. And you think, oh, God, what's, what's going on? And you go and pull the hood up on the car, and there's nothing in there, no engine, no carburetor, nothing like that. That's sort of what, you know, the role that microbes play. They are the nuts and bolts of just about, you know, at the root of just about everything that happens on this planet. So essentially... We can't do anything with this organic matter. Plants can't do anything with it without the microbes doing it. They're the, they're the engines. They're the, the busy bees. They're the ones who are doing 
all of that kind of work, the transmutational work. They're like this army of alchemists that are literally transmuting everything, breaking things down into the simplest elements and making them available to all life form on this planet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. People have begun to look at, you know, back to this question of, well, how microbial are we? Well, there's there's estimates uh, if you, you know, were to take a blood sample from any person on this planet and, and analyze the, the compounds in it, estimates that about 40% of the compounds circulating in a person's circulatory system were made by a microbe, a microbe in, in the person's body, and most of which occur in the gut. If you think of sort of things at this sort of nested scale, there's obviously the largest scale of all, well, not depending on how you think about it, let's say our planet is, uh, you know, the largest scale and there's all kinds of microbial things running the planet and then you scale that down to a human body and, oh, much the same is happening. You know, microbes are breaking down things in our body and making them available for other parts of our body. And, you know, you step it down to say, uh, you know, something like the scale of an insect and say a termite. Uh, termite, we all think is, you know, a wood eater and it it's definitely pulling all that wood into its body, but it's really sort of much more akin to a cow in that there's a whole microbial community in the gut of a termite that is digesting and breaking down all the cellulose in that in the wood. And there's been experiments done where they've killed off the gut microbiota of termites, and they're you know continuing to eat all this wood, but they die because. Microbes aren't in the gut, but are extracting um, nutrients for the termites and, and breaking down the cellulose. So it, it really is, you know, a totally hand-in-hand thing, um, every life form with the microbial world. My guests this morning are David Montgomery, professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington, and Anne Bickley, a biologist and gardener. They're the authors of The Hidden Half of Nature, about the microbial world of nature. And they will be giving a presentation and book signing this coming Tuesday evening at the Hay Barn on the Goddard campus here in Plainfield. That's this Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. Since you brought up the termites, could you tell the story of what you observed in Africa about how the termites fit in this equation between the microbial world and other life forms around them? Sure. We, we had the opportunity to, to visit um, several countries in, uh, in Southern Africa um, a couple of years ago in the process of writing this book. And, you know, we, you know, we had really gone there to look at large animals. That was the, the, the main sort of attraction from the people that were hosting us there. And the, as we started looking around the landscape, we started to notice interesting patterns uh, in terms of where the biggest trees that fed many of the herbivores were developed. And they were all sort of on the edges of these big old termite mounds. Uh, and we started to, by the end of the visit, we came away incredibly impressed with the role that termites serve in that landscape in terms of building pockets of fairly fertile soil that then support the big trees that these elephants and giraffes and, and other large herbivores 
were um, preferentially grazing on. Um, and it really illustrated the sort of the key connections between the way that life below ground sets up the conditions to support an explosion of life above ground and the communities above ground, the interconnected nature that crosses the, the boundary of the ground surface. And how does that work? Well, it's part of this, this cycling in terms of those, you know, the organic matter from both the animals and then also um, dead plant matter. The, ter the termites are taking that plant matter back down into their, um, into their nests, and they then cultivate fungus down there that helps to build organic matter in the, pot, the, the little island of their, um, of their nests, and that supports the growth of the big trees, which then supports more, um, you know, more biomass getting onto the soil that the termites can get, but also supports uh, the, the wonderful diversity of animals above ground. Um, and if we take that sort of simple lesson where you can kind of go to a place and see those connections, just from looking at where the biggest, healthiest trees are and relating that to the termite mounds and thinking about what's going on beneath the ground there, we can take that same kind of logic and apply it to the whole planet if we think over geologic time. Because if we look back to when the first land plants colonized, the first plants colonized the land surface, they actually came after the first microbes, the first bacterial mats and the fungi. And if we look in at the earliest fossils of land plants that geologists have found, they have mycorrhizal fungi wrapped around the roots. So plants actually had partners in colonizing the continents. The fungi helped plants get out of the sea uh, to, to create the world that we then were able to, to step into later. Uh, and that combination of the mycorrhizal fungi breaking down soil minerals and dead organisms and producing the compounds that the plants could take back up in their roots and promote their growth set up another positive feedback in which the more microbial life was in the soil, the healthier the plant community you could develop, so the more biomass was produced, which put more carbon back into the soil when those plants decayed, which fed more fungi, which produced more metabolites to feed the plants, and essentially the history of life on Earth since then has been that basic engine of life turning and driving the process of diversification and increasing soil development um, and diversity of life on Earth. Um, and when you start tracing, it turns out that that pattern in which life evolved on Earth from the, the microbes to the decomposers to, uh, to insects and plants and, and, uh, and then mammals and bird, bird well, proto-birds, dinosaurs and mammals, that same pattern was the order in which life came back to our yard once Anne started restoring our garden. So you can, you, if you really look for it and you think about these the relationships between the microbial world and the larger world of nature, you keep coming back to these patterns of cycles and symbioses as reinforcing mechanisms that promote the overall health of entire ecosystems, including if you think of yourself as an eco, of a microbial ecosystem within our own bodies. It's an incredibly intelligent evolutionary process, something that we human beings who consider ourselves king of the hill could really learn from and aspire to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, for all of our big brainedness, let's call it, we don't use our brains as well as we could. 
Yeah, no, there's, there's really big lessons for, for how we think about our, the basic way that we live in the world, how the basic ways that we try and sort of promote our own health. And, you know, the bottom line comes down to working with and cultivating uh, those microbial allies that promote our own health is probably one of the most efficient things that we could do because there's trillions of them. So, you know, we really want them to be on our side in the sense of their lifestyle and activities, their community ecology, doing things that promote our own health. And, you know, it's not guaranteed that they will because it depends on what it is they're receiving for food, what kind of habitat they have. They don't engage in these symbiotic relationships with us simply to be nice with us or to be nice to plants. Um, they do it because it's in their own benefit. And our relationships with microbes, uh, the way we think about them, have been greatly shaped by the microbes that do damage to us, the pests and pathogens, for which the basic idea of germ theory, the idea that, you know, that, that microbes are bad, they're germs, they cause diseases, um, it's really a good way to explain the, the sort of ecology, if you will, of a lot of um, disease and pest organisms where there's, you can pinpoint the one organism that causes a disease like cholera or tuberculosis or polio. And we made great advances in the 20th century in terms of how to improve public health by learning how to combat those particular germs, those particular disease-causing organisms. But in that process, we overlooked the role that communities of microbes can play in promoting the overall health of organisms. We focus on the bad actors and not the good communities. And you know, you can kind of argue about whether you can call microbes good or bad. They don't really have any intentions, of course, because they're brainless after all. Um, but you can call them good or bad in terms of the effects that they produce for a system we care about, which, in, you know, in the case of our own health, is ourselves. And there's ways that we can go about cultivating the beneficial members of our microbiome that probably, that I think Ann and I believe, is one of the, the best and most efficient ways that we can think of to sort of promote our own general individual health and public health in, in, in a broader sense um, by trying to promote, the cult and promote and cultivate those, those beneficial communities. Yeah, it's, it really boils down to the simplicity of cultivating beneficial relationships, just like we do up here. And we have a caller on the line. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. I hate to interrupt, but I've been dying to ask a couple of questions. Um, I'm wondering about Monsanto, Roundup, and then if you have time, could you mention colitis and maybe how what you talked about at the beginning of the program, how these microbes can be helped to maybe cure colitis instead of the current protocol that's, that's going on. Thank you for the questions. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, we'll, tr we'll try and get to some of those uh, pieces, and, you know, if you're free Tuesday night, come and talk to us more. But, the, you know, in terms of the, um, the glyphosate question that you asked, that's obviously one, a, a question that's a very big question in a lot of people's minds. And if you look back at what glyphosate was originally patented for, it was uh, to, to clean out metal pipes. It was to clean out scale uh, from pipes. Uh, it's a metal chelator. It basically uh, bounds binds to, to metals um, and makes them, um, you know, isolates them. And it also became apparent that it was a very good um, herbicide, sort of further down about a decade or so after it was first uh, patented for other purposes. 
And it's the most widely used herbicide in the world. And there's been studies that have looked at how um, glyphosate applications affect the microbiota in soils and nutrient transfer in particular. And if you look at um, so the transfer of micronutrients, the sort of those mineral elements in the soil that are actually essential to plant health, if you're putting something on the soil in large concentrations that uh, binds up those kinds of metals and doesn't allow them to get into plants, you can make a very good case that that will affect plant nutrition and plant health through the, its micronutrient provision and acquisition. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of studies that have gone into great detail on the microbial community changes that accompany that, but um, there's every, you know, the, in terms of conventional and, and, and teased out the differential effects, say, of plowing from glyphosate from nitrogen fertilizer, all of which uh, will impact the, the communities of soil life. How does plowing do it? Well, plowing uh, opens up the soil to increased oxidation, and, and um, it increases the pace at which organic matter is decomposed, which reduces the reservoir of fertility, if you will, in the soil. And nitrogen fertilizers enhance that, that process as well and degrade soil organic matter. Um, so you have major impacts of modern conventional agriculture, some of which predate glyphosate, uh, that have great impacts on soil microbiota and have greatly impacted, um, well, first of all, so the native the fertility of the soil, but also have probably impacted nutrient cycling in the soils and provision of micronutrients into, into the crops and, therefore, the nutritional density or quality of the foods that we eat. And if we look at the, um, the micronutrient concentration, uh, the things that not the, the major nutrients, but uh, um, the things that we need in small amounts like zinc and iron and copper, things you wouldn't normally think of as a nutrient because we need so little of them, but that they're so essential to our health. The concentration of those elements in foods that's been documented from the 1940s and 50s to today, sort of the era of modern agriculture, they've dropped by you know a third to a half in many of the studies that have been looked at. Of course, some of that's due to plant breeding, but we think some of it's due to this, these disruptions of micronutrient acquisition. So that's one thing. The, the other area, if you look at a lot of the controversy over glyphosate in terms of what are the health effects, uh, it's long been argued that it's by, um, uh, by industry that it's, you know, it, it has relatively low acute toxicity for humans, and therefore it's safe. But when you start looking at it in terms of, well, what does it do to the microbiome of organisms, the sort of secondary effects, if you will, of what's it doing to our, our microbial crew, there's not a lot of studies. I haven't found any studies on people that have to address that, but there are studies on cows, chickens, and, uh, goats. and goats. And goats. I was going to say sheep, but apparently goats. Uh, from Europe that have looked at the effect of glyphosate on disrupting the gut microbiome of livestock. And those studies have reported fairly big um, impacts at, you know, some with large concentrations of glyphosate and some with fairly small concentrations. Uh, and so I think that one of the big questions that's coming up in terms of both the soil microbiome and the gut microbiome in terms of glyphosate the new questions that are coming up don't center so much on direct toxicity as much as on the indirect effect of what's it doing to disrupting the microbiome or microbiomes in the soil and in our own bodies. And I think those are questions that deserve a lot more attention 
and a lot closer scrutiny because the studies that have been starting to bubble up, mostly out of European um, labs, uh, really give you uh, a pause to wonder, well, what are the connections here? And then there's, of course, the whole controversy over the Europeans uh, identifying glyphosate as a human carcinogen. Um, and yes, there's a lot of questions going into that there. And I think Anne is probably the better person to address the colitis part of your question. It's interesting. Some of the things that Dave was just talking about, there's parallels, um, not, not speaking directly to glyphosate, but parallels in the effects of perturbing and altering um, microbiomes, whether it's in the soil or whether it's in our own bodies. And uh, so colitis, that's inflammation of the colon. And inflammation is a really interesting process in the body. We became, uh, we became interested in it, me in particular, because the immune system is really the controller of inflammation in our bodies. And we, of course, need it. Um, it's absolutely essential for when we are, say, uh, sending off a virus that causes flu or you've got uh, some abnormal cell activity that maybe is precancerous. Your, your immune system's job is to take care of those problems and, uh, and oust those, you know, either uh, kill off the abnormal cells or go after the flu virus. But it's really powerful. So when you turn inflammation on and it's charging, you know, charging away and doing what it does, you want that to happen quickly and then you want it to shut off. Inflammation is a little bit like, say, uh, a wrecking crew that would come into your house and uh, gutted everything and there's dust flying and there's debris and as anyone who's taken on any remodeling knows, there's always something unintended that happens. You know, oh, the big hole got, you know, punched in the wall. Oh, that window got, you know, broken when they, uh, you know, put the two-by-four through it. And so excessive, you know, inflammation that runs on and on and on, the longer it goes on, the chances are higher that there's going to be some, you know, kind of accidental damage. And... Colitis, um, Crohn's, any of these digestive disorders, I don't want to give the impression that it's, you know, all microbiome um, related because there's other factors involved and two of the, the biggest ones are we all um, are unique genetically, right? And so my genome is different than yours and, and whatever my ancestry was is you know why I have the genome that I do. So some people are perhaps more susceptible to um, an immune system that is turning on when it it, it shouldn't uh, in various places along the digestive tract. Um, so there's that genetic factor, but there's also something we can't control our genes. We're not like microbes. We can't you know change them day to day. Uh, but there is something else that's a factor that we have a lot of control over, and that is our diet. And our diet matters a lot to our microbiome, especially um, the microbiota that live in our colon, because our microbes need to eat, just like we do, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, meals all the time. And what uh, 
put it this way. It looks like um, the human microbiome, if we want to, uh, you know, reap as many benefits from it as we can, and this is, you know, all of these things being equal, it explains why an abundance of plant foods in our diet is so good for us. Microbes are expert at breaking down um, plant foods. And if you look around uh, all the different cultures on this planet and, and our evolution over time, think about how many different plant foods we eat. And, and even going back, if you throw in, you know, the diversity of a diet of a hunter-gatherer, uh, it's really pretty incredible. But the only thing that's really allowed us to survive on that kind of a diet is our gut microbiota because they have the enzymes that break down all of that plant food once it reaches our colon. It's just like Dave was talking about, you know, the, the um, microbiota in the, the gut of a termite. We, we, we would be in pretty sad shape if we didn't have our microbes breaking down all of our plant foods. But consider that, you know, a perturbed or altered microbiome, maybe you're, you've got a community that either has uh, missing somebody in there or maybe you've got extra members in that community that are not normally there. And, you know, we were talking about how, you know, one microbe's output is another microbe's input. And if you've got missing players or extra players... Uh, that are interfering in that process, you know, say, you know, grabbing the output that's intended for one microbe uh, or providing a different input that another microbe is getting a hold of, you can see how this can create, you know, some kind of a ripple effect um, in the colon. So uh, I know there's been been some um, some work done on on altering the diet of folks with digestive disorders, and some of it has been quite successful. And uh, in other cases, it, it hasn't been so successful, and probably what's going on there is you've got a situation where, you know, the, um, the, you can do a lot with manipulating diet, uh, and then other times you've got a person's genome, you know, that may be overriding um, be an overriding factor that, and that's something that we can't really change. So I don't know if there's a you know a cure for colitis or any of these other um, maladies, but there's certainly better ways to manage it uh, through you know cultivating our microbiome in different ways. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield WGDH Hardwick. I'm speaking with David Montgomery and. Anne Bickley, and they are the authors of The Hidden Half of Nature, and they will be giving a presentation and book signing this coming Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. at the Hay Barn here on the Goddard campus in Plainfield. And we have a caller. Welcome. You're on the air. Good morning. Um, I wanted to share that a couple of years ago I was down in uh, whatever the town is south of the Vermont border. I can't remember. I picked up a copy of the, of the Berkshire Eagle. And there was a very interesting article about a pig farmer who began to realize his pigs weren't doing well. And he began to wonder whether it had to do with the feed and corn being treated with glyphosate. And so he changed the feed at cost, you know, cost to him financially. 
but the effect on his pigs was phenomenal. And he was talking about it because he just felt it was really essential that people understand that. One of the things that I dimly recall is that in terms of how the organism functions, pigs are actually, we're pretty close to pigs. So it's something to think about. And since 2014, there have been articles in reputable publications talking about the uh, glyphosate herbicide affecting below-ground interaction between earthworms and symbiotic mycorrhizal fungi in the system. So I think that, you know, this is an article that was uh, published in July of 2014 in the journal Nature, and there was a follow-up that was published uh, in July of 2015 relating to glyphosate herbicides reducing the activity and reproduction of earthworms. And what we don't talk about enough when we talk about concern about Roundup is the broad spectrum. And so I really appreciate the show, and I just hope people do a little bit of research to make themselves a bit more educated, a bit more able to talk with other people about this is just not benign. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. Yeah, the story of the changing feed on the pig farmers is one that I've heard similar stories um, from other farmers, and these studies in Europe provide some of the uh, uh, evidence to sort of back up the idea of a connection there. Um, and I think that it's, you know, the the avenue of asking about what are these secondary impacts of glyphosate uh, on organisms that may consume them, what, what are the effects of on soil life and effects on um, the microbiomes of animals is really the right question to be asking at this point. And there's a few studies that have, have um, pointed to connections in different areas of that, and I think we're going to be seeing a whole lot more studies along those lines in the next few years. Yeah, I, I just would add to that. So often we think of, you know, when we hear of chemicals in our food or our water that, that you know, are synthetic and that have gotten in there through one means or another, um, we, uh, let's see how to put this, we don't, um, well, we often think in terms of acute toxicity, so, you know, this thing, arsenic, you know, will kill us. But really what's going on, the more we learn, at least in the context of microbiome science, is that these chemicals are not necessarily killing anything. What they are doing is scrambling things. And when you scramble something, um, it's not going to work like it used to work. It's going to work differently. So, um you know, I suspect the microbiomes of those pigs, you know, with whatever was on that corn, and, and it, you know, I don't know if there was an analysis done on, on, on the corn to find out, well, what else besides corn is in the corn? I think glyphosate's definitely a case of altering things. And when you alter things, you know, by definition, they're pretty unlikely to work how they used to work before they were altered. And that's um, I think that's an important thing to, to think about when we just talk about all the synthetic chemicals that, that are ending up in our food or water and our air. And that's one of the, the hard things to study, in effect, is if you look at the disruption of a community ecology of organisms that are invisible, you know, too small for us to actually see, that many of which have the same form and hard to tell apart, uh, it's actually fairly difficult to study the community interactions of microbial life. We've, the tools to be able to actually start having a window on those interactions 
have only been available for a couple decades in terms of gene sequencing technologies. But it's not like what we can do with the above-ground world of nature where we, have, we, we can employ all of our senses to try and ferret out what those ecological relationships are. When you change one piece of it, how does that affect the rest of the system? And I think Anne's absolutely right in terms of the, um, the importance or potential importance of things scrambling microbial um, relationships with their organisms, with higher organisms um, that they have had symbiotic relationships with. Because if those relationships get scrambled and they were essential to the health of a host organism, you could have a very indirect effect that's very real, but it's much harder to connect the dots than, say, for those organisms that where there's a single organism that causes a single disease and we can identify it and then manage that problem. And this is a problem that I think is behind many of the sort of the chronic diseases, both in terms of the soil, in terms of soil degradation, but also in terms of um, what's been afflicting uh, people increasingly for the last 50 years, and also what's been going on with livestock in, in, under modern uh, agriculture. These questions are, are really very, very timely. And they have such a profound effect on us, and science is still in its infancy in terms of understanding what's going on at these hidden levels. And we have a weird kind of backwards approach to these concerns. Often people will say, well, there's no proof that any of these things are causing harm when we should probably be thinking more in terms of, well, there's no proof that they're safe and we shouldn't be gambling with our health. Oh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely the right way to think about it. And I think especially with the microbiome, you know, just when you thought the world couldn't get any more complex looking into the microbiome science and say you've got a community of, you know, 40, 50, 100 different bacterial species and then you, you know, remove 10 of them and put another 10 in that are completely different, trying to figure out how exactly, you know, what the effect is of all of that. And then you, you throw in, you know, a change in diet, whether for the soil or a person, and uh, you change, you know, any number of other factors, and it quickly becomes apparent that maybe the best strategy is to just not screw things up in the first place because we know that when we don't screw things up, they generally, you know, work as expected and work uh, in our favor. Yeah, practice good stewardship in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and we have another caller. Welcome, you're on the air. Thanks. Yeah, that's the best advice I've ever heard about farming, by the way. Um, I noticed that wild birds and, and horses have a, a way of knowing what food is and what food isn't. And when I throw out what's left in a cereal package, depending on what it is, the wild birds don't recognize it as food. So I'm wondering if you could tell me, have some idea of, of why they don't recognize it as food. With horses, I'm, I know pretty much why it is, but I just want to point out that if the hay isn't right, they don't recognize it as something they can eat. So if you could talk a little bit about that, thank you very much. That is a very interesting observation that you have about how do animals recognize, you know, food from non-food, and that when you throw the crumbs of a cereal, you know, the remaining parts of uh, whatever's in a, the box of cereal out, 
that it sounded like the birds sort of turned their, you know, proverbial noses up at that. But say you take a, a bird that's used to eating seeds, right? So that seed is in its whole form. You know, it's got um, it's got its brand part, it's a, you know, outer tough sort of shell that protects it, and it's got um, the germ and the endosperm. And, and of course, I don't know what kind of cereal you, you're, you know, leaving out for them, but it's processed in some way, and it's kind of, um, it's in a form that that bird maybe comes across and goes, huh, this is kind of strange. I kind of recognize this, but I don't really recognize the whole thing, and maybe they'll peck around and look around for something that, that, you know, their brain recognizes as a whole seed. And in lieu of a whole seed, you know, they may sort of peck at this part or that part, but it's never quite uh, fitting their search pattern for what it is that they're used to eating. And that's not to mention uh, whatever else might be on that cereal, whether it's um, sugar or a fat or a chemical of some sort, which isn't, you know, a normal thing found on a wild seed. I was just rereading a book by Lady Eve Balfour from the 1940s called The Living Soil. Uh, she published it in 1943, and she was making the case based on observations of farmers like herself and medical doctors that she collaborated with that healthy soil led to healthy livestock, led to healthy people. She was sort of connecting the dots dots between healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy animals, and healthy people. And in that book, she relates stories very similar to what uh, the, our caller um, related in terms of um, farm animal, animal animals not wanting to eat mm -hmm. crops that had been fertilized with a lot of nitrogen fertilizer as opposed to those that were grown um, with a lot of farmyard manure. And she hypothesized that it was due to differences in the nutrient concentration, that one was sort of nutrient-dense food and the other was um, uh, had much less in terms of nutrient uh, density. And so it was that the animals were detecting a food quality difference. Um, and she reported stories from both farm cats and also uh, livestock. And so I think it's an interesting question to think about in terms of the stories she was telling of, of when she would switch out the food they either turn their nose up at it and then go for the food that she considered to be better grown and healthier. They would they would always eat it. So I think there's there's a lot there to be looked at and thought about. Yeah, um, yeah. and I was just thinking we're sort of in an artificial environment as humans in that we walk into a grocery store and what appeals to our eye is, is typically you know the unblemished, most perfect looking thing. We equate that with quality of food with nutrient quality and taste, but that's not necessarily the case as, as we all know, and I'm sure many people listening to this show who are farmers and gardeners are, you know, really in tune with this. So we have not only sort of the cosmetic look of something that's scrambling our innate ability to determine and assess food quality and nutrient density, but we also have the forces of marketing that are telling us, you know, we're trying to evaluate a food based on what the picture on the box looks like. I mean, that's, that's just kind of crazy. And, and, of course, pigs and birds um, and all other animals are relying on their innate senses and instincts to help them decide what is it do I eat. Do I eat these cereal crumbs 
or is there some kind of a wild seed that I've eaten before, I know I like it, I know it's good for me. So it's a very, that's a, a just a very interesting um, question there. Yeah, it's fortunate that they're not sitting around watching television to find out what they should be eating and the, and the, and the lifestyle they should be living. <laughs> Correct, yeah. So we have about 10 minutes left. I'm wondering about your upcoming book, Growing a Revolution, and perhaps I'm not sure what's in that book, but there's the issue of how soil building relates to carbon sequestration and remediation of climate change that we could end on. Yeah, sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to talk about that. I, in fact, I get the page proofs for the book uh, about a week from now, and it'll be published on May 9th. And the full title is Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. And it's, you know, in, in the research that Ann and I did on the hidden half of nature, um, the, we became very interested, as we've been discussing, about the relationship between microbial life and soil fertility and the health of plants and the, and the people who eat them in our own gut and so forth. Um, and that got me very interested in looking into the idea of, well, how would you go about the process of restoring soils at a global scale, restoring life to soils at a global scale, through agricultural uh, practices? And, you know, I'm a geologist by background, so I'm not really the person, the right person to tell anybody how to farm. Anne has the green thumb in our household. I have a brown thumb. I do whatever she tells me in the garden, and it's better than what I would have thought to do. Um, the, and so what I did is I basically took the idea of going to farms around the world where the farmers have been restoring their soil, have been doing it for decades, that have to put long-term efforts into soil restoration, and tried to look for commonalities between the practices that worked on small subsistence farms in Africa, coffee plantations and agroforestry uh, operations in Costa Rica, cattle ranches in uh, North Dakota, large-scale cropping uh, in South Dakota, uh, commercial corn and soy um, um, farms in Ohio, um, the Organic Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania, um, and, and I tried to look at, okay, well, what has really worked to restore soil? And came down to sort of the simple ideas that we were talking about earlier of cultivating the beneficial life. That's the basically the umbrella that really seems to work with different practices, like, like the EM, the, the effective microorganisms that you mentioned earlier, uh, is sort of one way to do it. But how do you get those practices to translate into farming practices that can actually produce enough food for farmers to not only stay in business, but to thrive in their communities and, and their own contexts. And it really seems to boil down to a couple simple principles of not disturbing the soil surface, so essentially uh, not tilling or going to minimal, minimal disruption of the surface, to planting cover crops that include legumes, nitrogen fixers, that, uh, to increase nitrogen content in the soil, and to plant... Um, cover crops to increase the carbon content in the soil as that organic matter then decays and works back into this land, and adopting diverse rotations, not growing simply corn or corn and soy, but getting three, four, or more crops into a rotation and having a diversity of, of life on a farm. And the places that I visited across the board, from places that were 20,000 know, acre farms in the U.S., down to you know a fraction of an acre subsistence farms in Africa, applying those simple principles allowed 
either maintaining or increasing crop yields, greatly decreasing uh, nitrogen fertilizer use, greatly decreasing um, fossil fuel use, diesel in particular, because if you're not plowing, you're not um, um, driving tractors as much, and greatly decreasing insecticide, pesticide, herbicide use um, you know, by 50 to 90 percent uh, for all those things, for the, the, the fertilizer, the pesticides, and, and diesel, depending on which farm. And what that resulted in is a better bottom line for the farmers because they were maintaining their harvests after about a two- or three-year transition period where they didn't get much benefit. They then started to get um, um, more benefit. Uh, but, and so they're growing as much as they had been before, but they were spending less to do so. And not just spending less in terms of capital, but spending less in terms of time. And so this really started to give me um, ideas for how you might turn around the processes of soil degradation that, as I discussed in my, my, one of my first books, Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations, has plagued societies throughout history. Since the dawn of agriculture, people have made their living by farming practices that degrade the soil. And yet here are these farmers who had a whole different system that if you put those three pieces together, those three principles I mentioned of minimal disturbance, cover cropping, and diverse rotations, that's defines a system that has come to be called conservation agriculture, uh, which also is being called climate smart agriculture, because one of the side benefits is that it puts more carbon into the soil. It builds up soil organic matter. And organic matter, you know, if it's carbon-based life, which we all are on this planet, um, organic matter is very rich in carbon. So when you increase soil organic matter content, you're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and you're storing it in the soil. And I visited farms where the farmers through, you know, a couple decades worth of farming practices had taken their soil from minimal carbon content, you know, half a percent to two percent, and brought it back up to five percent, six percent, to as much as ten percent uh, carbon, virtually restoring their soils back to the, sort of their native fertility. And what's beautiful about it is they did it through intensive farming practices. They did it through growing food. This is another example of one of these large-scale symbioses where if the things that we do to grow our food can actually result in improved soil quality, more life in the soil that helps us grow the next generation of food, we can actually turn around some of the problems of degradation that we've seen globally. And the estimates of how much carbon we could actually sequester in the world's agricultural soils by doing that range quite a bit. They range from on the low side, uh, 5 to 15% that Rattan Lau, an Ohio State University scientist, has estimated, up to completely offsetting fossil fuel emissions, as the Rodale Institute has estimated. I think that the real answer lies somewhere in between. But And that wide range, you know, 10%-ish to 100% is the whole game, right? But... The point is, is that whatever carbon sequestration benefit we get out of changing our agricultural practices is a benefit on top of making agriculture actually sustainable and to increase the, the bottom line for farmers on farms around the world. So I'm pretty excited about that. It'll be out uh, May 9th, Growing a Revolution. Uh, it's coming out from W.W. Norton, and uh, I obviously recommend it to all your listeners as something for their next spring's reading list. Yeah, I, I think... One of the things that's really exciting about that book is that, think about it, what if, as a result of agriculture, soil could actually be improved? I mean, that's turning around, you know, the, the, what, quote, you know, is called the 10,000-year-old problem. And that 
to me is pretty exciting. It's not just exciting. It's, it's, it's got to be done if we're going to be able to um, sustain agriculture as, you know, a critical enterprise for humanity and feed people. And I don't mean just, you know, calories, 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 but feed people with healthy food, nutrient-dense food. And so it's in these times, which it can often seem like, oh, everything's such a downer and depressing, I think that um, this is really exciting and really hopeful. And it turns out that what's driving it all? The microbes cultivating the beneficial ones that we talked about in the hidden half of nature. So there's hope for the world. (laughs) (laughs) I think if we can turn the soil around, it sets the stage for turning other things around. Yeah, you know, restoring soil isn't going to solve all the problems. It won't solve the climate problem. It won't solve the fossil fuel problem. But it's a, it's a really good down payment on it. Yeah, and I think anybody, any, any gardener, farmer out there uh, can attest to how quickly the soil can actually change. You know, within a season of, you know, changing a practice, like, say, how much organic matter you're returning to the soil, you'll see differences, you know, shortly thereafter. And it's very similar in the human body, too. I mean, there's been experiments done on uh, changing a person's diet and then taking a look at how that person's microbiome changed. And that is really rapid. That is within, you know, 8 to 10 hours. And, you know, what it amounts to is, you know, this grand nutrient cycling that the microbial world participates in. You provide them with different inputs, So, you know, for the soil, that's organic matter. You know, for our bodies, maybe that's, you know, a whole lot more plant foods than than we used to eat before. They'll turn on a dime, and they'll start uh, churning out a whole different set of compounds, chemicals, and, and molecules for their host organism. Well, it sounds great and hopeful, and I want to thank you both so much for being on the show. This has been really a wonderful conversation. Oh, yeah, thank you. It, it really has been, and we look forward to continuing the, the conversation on um, Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at the uh, Hay Barn. Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, likewise. Be well, and good luck with the book. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers. And that was David Montgomery, professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington, and Anne Bickley, a biologist and gardener. They're the authors of The Hidden Half of Nature, and they'll be giving a presentation and book signing this Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. at the Hay Barn here on the Goddard campus in Plainfield. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Magical Mystery Tour. Until next time, have a great week.